You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Great to be with you. I have a very special guest with me today. In fact, his resume is so impressive. I'm listing a few more of his accomplishments and I usually do in an introduction. Not only is he a plastic reconstructive surgeon, which we'll be getting into his perspective on the entire sex change, transgender drama, but he also has been married for 38 years. He is a convert from growing up in a Jewish home to becoming an atheist in his adult years and now a Catholic and in fact, a deacon. He's a retired naval captain and even was in the Marines flying an F-4 Phantom. Dr. Patrick Lapper, thank you for being with me today. It's a pleasure, Timory. I was honored to be invited. Okay, so for I have to ask the question. For so many people, especially young men today who are struggling in their career, trying to provide, could you just, you know, looking at your background, speak for a second to the many young men who maybe are wanting to make a change in their career, but don't know how to balance it. Any thoughts of insight there? Well, uh, it's good to be prayerful, but it's also a good to kind of have sort of confidence in your abilities, certainly work on, on, your, on your skills and your capacities all the time and have confidence in them. But if you feel you're called to something new, to a change in your life, certainly be very prayerful about it, but, but have some courage and, and turn to God for that courage and uh, don't be afraid. Because this is certainly the time in which we're living uh, calls us to, to be ready to change because the world around us is changing so rapidly. And, and especially if you're in a circumstance where you have to provide for a family, you know, you want to do it prudently, but you have to have some courage, too. So. Thank you for speaking to that, because I know there are so many listeners who write to me all the time. I'm looking at making a big change, but I have that pressure, like you said, of providing for a family. So I really appreciate that, especially looking at your career and just the multifaceted elements and now your incredible service in bridging this crisis of really the medical community, having a conversation with the crisis over plastic surgery and its tie into what many people are now calling. I mean, it used to be a sex change surgery, which you can't really change your sex, but really a manipulation of the body and castration, which we'll dive into later in your perspective. But I want to start with understanding from really a Catholic spin tied into your medical practice. What is the purpose of plastic surgery and its function and happiness of the person coming to you? Okay, well, well, the, the term plastic surgery is, is, is very much misunderstood. Plastic, of course, means changeable or malleable. And so plastic surgery is about changing uh, the appearance of things uh, and generally in the service of function. So plastic surgery, I like to sort of humorously say plastic surgery is about surgery of the skin and its contents because plastic surgery isn't limited to a particular area of the body or a particular age of the person or anything of the sort. But because it's mostly about surgery of of the skin, uh, it's one of the oldest forms of surgery. In fact, before we developed the the skills of anesthesia, plastic surgery, the the operations we today call plastic surgery, are about the only things you could do because anything more than that would tend to be lethal. Surgery inside the body cavities, very dangerous before the advent of uh, uh, anesthesia and the life support processes that we use 
when we do surgery, for example, of the bowel or surgery of the lungs and certainly surgery of the heart. So the particular areas of operation that we call plastic surgery today have been around for thousands of years. So what, how does this relate to human happiness? Well, very often things, when they're deformed, will affect the way we can function. And so, for example, if you suffer a, de- a deforming injury, say from an uh, agricultural accident or from warfare or from a burn or something like that, it can cause not only a, 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 an obvious disfigurement, but a loss of your abilities, a loss of your human capacities. So, for example, a burn of the hand that restricts the movement of the fingers uh, just cries out for surgical intervention so that you can restore the person's hand and they can resume a more normal life. In addition to the fact that the dis- Disfigurement of an injury can be uh, anxiety-provoking, to be physically disfigured, particularly in your face, by injury, by accident, by cancer, surgery, things like that. To restore somebody's form is a very important thing. So we tend to make light of what's called cosmetic surgery. We sort of ascribe it to vanity, but it's, I think it's more accurate to call it aesthetic surgery. Because we are human persons, and and, and among the things that affect us is beauty, the the sort of unified good of a thing, and what it does and its beautiful appearance is as sure a reality as any other truth is. So sometimes disfigurement can really cause uh, a loss of function for aesthetic reasons. So so for a person to see a deformity of their face every day can be a, a, a very wearing sort of thing. And if you can correct it without subjecting the person to a great deal of risk, that's a, that's a genuine good. So, for example, a, a boy born with very prominent ears and in his early years of school will be hearing about that from his classmates a lot and, and suffer ridicule and maybe have a nickname before he's out of second grade. And, and that can be a very wearing thing on a child. Well, if you, can, if you can fix that with about 40 minutes worth of surgery and little to no risk for the child, that's a really good thing because you relieve him of a daily anxiety. Uh, because the fact is we are incarnate creatures, and so what we see affects how we feel. That's the reason why a beautiful church building can be such a compelling thing compared to, you know, a trivial or a, or a stupidly designed church building, which can be an oppressive thing. So uh, plastic surgery, in essence, is about surgery of form and function together, and not one over the other, but, but both together, because that's what the human person is. The, per- the human person is both. When you're talking about this, Dr. Patrick Lapper, I want to dive into some of the objections that right away, someone who's hearing this, who's in favor of sex changes might throw at you. And by the way, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Trending with Tim Ray. My guest today is Dr. and Deacon Patrick Lapper. He works as a plastic reconstructive surgeon. So as you're talking about things such as instilling confidence um, and really feeling more comfortable, let's say if there's some perceived dissatisfaction in your opinion, appearance. People might comment as you're saying, you know, we want to bring about this comfort, right? We want to have people really be confident in how they feel. But for some people, if they think that they're a man and they're really a woman and that's impacting how they feel, they're going to say, well, if that's going to bring about my happiness, why can't I just go for it? Well, that's a very common question. I think at the heart of the answer is a better understanding of who the human person is. One of the mistakes that people are making in contemporary life is viewing themselves as sort of a spirit creature, 
uh, and their bodies as something that they own or something that they possess. They view their own bodies as something that, that they can do things to in order to provoke happiness in themselves. It's a very self-referential uh, uh, view of the human person, and it, and it has at its heart this division of the nature of the human person. So plastic surgery, it can never divorce itself from objective reality, just as no, no form of medical care can separate itself from the objective truth of who the human person is. So if I... W- if I aim to be a good surgeon, then the very first thing I have to understand is the subject upon whom I am working. Uh, if I have great, grave misunderstandings about the objective reality of, that, of the person, I'm going to be making some serious mistakes when I embark on medical or surgical care. So, for example, if you want to uh, help somebody's heart function, You've got to have a really good understanding of how the heart is formed and how the heart functions and how you cannot separate the form of the heart from the function of the heart because when you start to deform the form of the heart, you really start to deform the function of the heart. At the core of all of that is the objective truth of the physical, the embodied nature of the human person. So to view the body as a thing that somebody uh, that that a person owns to view themselves their their personhood as something separate from their own bodies is a very grave mistake and then to set about modifying the body in ways that you hope will will bring about a lasting happiness can't possibly succeed because it begins with a lie. It begins with an error about the objective truth of who the human person is. And we as Catholics, of course, we understand that the human person is a single nature comprised of body and spirit, that we are not spirit creatures who inhabit bodies, nor are we bodies that are, that are uh, animated by a spirit. And so to begin a course of treatment with that, that premise, that the person is, say, I'm a, I've, I'm a male person that happens to be in the wrong body, well, that's a lie from the very first words of that, uh, because you're not that. A human person is not that. And I, I, sh- I should also point out that in, in, in all my years of medical training, in all those years of medical school and surgical residency, plastic surgery residency, I never once heard a professor or read an article that describe the human person as a spirit creature that inhabits a body. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think maybe this is a result of too much of fantasy reading here that I can be yeah, my own right? spirit creature. But, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit, but it's the influence of philosophers such as Rene Descartes, who really says the body and soul are separate. And it's interesting because part of this transgender movement, it's almost a bit of an appeal to trying to search out for a person's soul and find that there's something transcendent about me, but they're getting it wrong. That's exactly right. It's a kind of Gnosticism to the secret knowledge or the secret understanding about who the human person is, and we're going to help you find him. And this is profoundly different. What you're saying is that the sex change is actually trying to say that I am, a, as a person, am not acting according to what my function is meant to be versus someone who you're saying has tremendous anxiety, let's see, over predominant ears or predominantly protruding nose, are fixing things aesthetically, but the functions can still work, which we'll dive into a little bit later about how the function of having a sex change actually really manipulates the body to shut down in ways that it should be working, especially with children who are prepubescent. And just the manipulation that's taking place is absolutely shocking. 
Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Thank you for being with me. I have a Dr. Patrick Lapper, who's a plastic surgeon, a reconstructive surgeon, in fact, and we're talking about his thoughts as a plastic surgeon on sex changes, which we'll be diving more and more into. But before we get there, we just talked about the purpose of plastic surgery. Now we need to really talk about, especially with you being a deacon as well, the separation and really the importance of recognizing body and soul, and that is who we are, essentially. Right. And so so in examining the human person, you know, if you're trying to get the full understanding of it, which is the fundamental requirement, if you're going to be practicing as a doctor, you have to base your work on the truth of who the human person is, the objective realities of who the human person is. And you cannot claim to understand who a human person is by just finding a single person and studying them, because no matter how uh, how effective you are as a scientist physician, uh, you'll be able to make all kinds of positive statements about circulation or respiration or the nervous system or locomotion, muscle skeletal systems, and so on. But you'll get to these parts of the human person which will not explain themselves if you just have a single person by themselves there for your examination. You'll get to their reproductive parts which do not explain themselves. There's nothing about them that tells you what they are for unless you have the complementary other. So you cannot understand the fullness of who the human person is unless you have the complementary two, the dimorphic two, a man and a woman, then you can understand what the totality of the human person is. Because again, there are parts that do not explain themselves, and they are made for the other. That's the other thing it tells you. That's one of the most beautiful things that we get from St. John Paul II about the theology of the body, is that that our, our bodies speak to the reality that we are made for the other. So you cannot uh, you cannot claim to to be a good physician uh, and deny that dim- what's called the dimorphism of the human person the fact that male and female we are and and without taking that into account you're you're not serving the human person so so that's that's the first place where we're challenged on all this is this idea that binary that the human binary is something artificial or arbitrary or cultural or social when i have this conversation with high schoolers i like to point out some fun what i call binary facts or the dimorphic facts the fact that humanity is male and female uh for example the average lean body mass of females is between 69 and 75 percent the average lean body mass of males in the United States is 76 to 82 percent, a very clear dividing line with no overlap, the, the lean body mass. But what's an even more telling thing is, do you realize that in the United States, the, the high school boys' athletic record in every track and field event, right, this is high school boys, boys that are not physically mature, boys that have not been trained in these, in these uh, Olympic events for very, for very long, U.S. boys' high school record in every track and field event is better than all of the women's records in those same events, the Olympic-level women's records, right? So women who are in collegiate athletics who've been training for the Olympics cannot do as well as high school boys, right? So so there's a very clear reality. 
So if anyone ever denies that there is such a thing as male and female, that that is not a reality, you can just start with obvious facts and not ever, not ever speak about human sexuality. Let's just talk about the realities of the embodied reality of the human person, male and female, dimorphic we are. So we know that that's, that part of our function, that's one of our, uh, our capacities, our reproductive capacity, is a very important thing to recognize because, of course, that explains where we come from. These seem like very obvious things, what I'm telling you, but I, what I find these days is I'm having to restate things that I thought were obvious when I was in fourth grade science, Such as which are different... being denied now. <laughs> They're being denied. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. For those who are just joining me, that is Dr. Patrick Lapper. He is a plastic reconstruct reconstructive surgeon and just as we're talking about this he's also a deacon in the catholic church you know there's a divide between body and soul and the fact that people don't even want to acknowledge biologically that there are tons hundreds of sex differences written into the very anatomy body muscular makeup of men and women and it's not to sound offensive that the fact that high school boys are beating women's olympic records that's just how it is and how our bodies function and so when we start to dive deeper into this body and soul makeup it dives into the question really of well what were we created for because if you were created you'd obviously have a purpose. And if you have a purpose, there are limitations to how you act. For example, on a much simpler level than the complex human person, a chair has a purpose of being something that I sit on. If I burn one leg off of the chair, I'm no longer going to be able to sit on it. Well, we're seeing different things happening with the human person where suddenly you start to engage. And again, we're a little blunt here on trending, but in anal or oral engagement between two persons of the same sex or even of the opposite sex, since that's not where the body parts belong, we now see severe rectal tearing, increased risk of sexually transmitted diseases and cancer as a, as a result of HPV and all these other areas that they never should have been, essentially. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, the uh, abuse of our, of our faculties, abuse of our capacities uh, and the misapplication of our embodied nature in, in pursuit of a disordered desire. So that's the other part of it is that is that we're 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 pursuing desires that have been uh, disordered or or altered by life experience, by the education that we're getting, by the things we're hearing. They're being distorted and directed at things for which they are not made, as you pointed out. You know, the, just the mechanics of intercourse and what it does to the body when things like that are are abused or misused. Uh, Okay. And so that's one of the objective realities that, that we, so, so when those topics come up, you know, speaking now as a board certified general surgeon, I can speak to the realities of what happens to the aerodigestive tract when people, when people act this way. It's an abuse of the embodied reality of what it is to be a human person and, and, the, and the price that's paid by people is uh, staggering sometimes. Can you go and elaborate a little bit more on the science of that and the impact? Well, so for example, the, what you what you brought up earlier about copulation between men, the the mechanical trauma that it causes on the on the on the lower digestive tract is is staggering uh, in terms of just the mechanical effects, the uh, introduction of of fluids that are laden with viral particles uh, being introduced to a, a a mucosal surface that readily absorbs those viral particles and causes all kinds of uh, immunologic changes in the person, uh, uh, infections of all kinds. Uh, it's just uh, the, the list is endless. So this whereas, says, go ahead whereas the complementary parts, when, when you examine <laughs> them, they are made for the other. They're, you know, the, the, and, and, and in a life-giving way. That's the other thing. One is a life-giving 
uh, encounter, and the other one is the use of another person for the sake of one's own satisfaction. And that's not a life-giving thing. That's a, that's a selfish thing. And that's the opposite of love. The opposite of love, of course, is the use of another person. And disordered desires lead, lead us to the, the use and abuse of other people. And that is not life-giving. It's, an, it's inimical to life. This is so interesting because we're seeing this rise in autoimmune diseases and a lot of health, food, digestive issues. And so this tie-in to same-sex attraction for some people. But even I'm thinking about the impact of vasectomies and how it's causing autoimmune issues because the sperm still has to go somewhere in the male body. Right, right. Yeah, and that, that, for example, has been associated with, with uh, more aggressive forms of prostate cancer, that, that men who have had vasectomies, if and when they develop prostate cancers, are, are more likely to have more aggressive forms of the disease. And, uh, yeah, it's... Isn't it ironic? People make jokes. I hear women, you know, in different areas. Oh, yeah, my husband needs to get snipped. But the level of um, I mean, just as a Catholic, just the impact on just the violation of human life and the sexual act, but also just the impact on the, his body down the road that they will have. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's a it's a mutilation. That's a mutilation that caught, that has consequences. That's right. Yeah. Now, Doctor right. Patrick Glapper, you also function as a chaplain for your local Courage Apostolate. Can you speak a little bit to the tie-in of your work with Courage as well? Yes. Well, I've I've been involved with Courage for about four, going on five years now, and uh, uh, it's a Catholic apostolate that that serves persons who experience same-sex attraction, uh, people who are trying to live a chaste life. Of course, chastity is something that all of humanity is called to, chastity uh, in, in accordance with their particular state in life. And so what courage is about is about helping people to live chastity uh, in a circumstance where they're experiencing same-sex attraction. So it's modeled on the uh, AA model of group uh, encounter, mutual support, and it's a very Catholic apostolate. It's uh, in all of its words and prayers and uh, and activities. It's very much in the heart of the church. Um, so and it's a it's a very it's a very helpful way. It helps. I think at the top of the list of things that benefits that it has for people is that people learn to live. To, to recognize that you can't live alone and that to have chaste friendship, to have chaste friendship is not only a, a good, but it's an anticipation of eternal life. Uh, the sort of chaste friendship that you see, for example, in religious community is, is as the Catechism tells us, that's an anticipation. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a foretaste of eternity. So to learn how to live that in this world is a, is a tremendous benefit to anyone. Uh, and certainly that's what we seek to uh, to do in, in courage. So we, we have local meetings, uh, as, as I say, run on the model of AA. Uh, they're not publicly announced. You know, you don't find it in the parish bulletin, but we develop a, a, a phone list, uh, an a, a email uh, list, and we announce meetings uh, to the members, and we meet usually at churches so that we can offer the sacrament of reconciliation at the time of the meeting. And it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous gift to the church. So that is a courage apostolate for those who are not aware of it. There are chapters all over the nation, I believe, even reaching outside the United States now. But there's all, also, all over the world. Yeah, yes. we're all over the world now. 
Wonderful. And there's a complementarity to it as well in the encourage apostolate for parents and family members um, of people who experience same-sex attraction as well, which you can check out. We'll link to all of this in the show notes. If you head over to radiotrending.com, if you're not able to listen to this whole episode on the radio while you're driving, you can listen to the crisp sound of the podcast. Just download it there. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Great to be back with you. I have with me Dr. Patrick Lapper, and we're diving into the topic of what is a sex change, and he will provide keen insights from the perspective as being a plastic reconstructive surgeon. So can you tell us what is a sex change and the difference between bottom surgery and top surgery and their later kind of ramifications? Okay, well, to begin with, the idea that you can change someone's sex is a lie. Many people have been led to believe by a lot of very clever uh, programs and, and advertising from plastic surgeons and whatnot that you can actually change a, a man into a woman or a girl into a boy or anything like that. You cannot. Uh, essentially, all you can do is you can modify people's bodies, both with, med- with medicines as well as with surgery. You can modify their bodies to make them appear to be the other sex, but they will never be the other sex. So uh, it begins sort of behaviorally with with uh, adopting a lifestyle, with uh, developing a name, developing a persona, uh, a, a way of speaking, a way of walking, and, and so on, a hairstyle, maybe the way you wear your makeup, uh, that sort of thing, uh, and then it moves along to an identity change, you know, getting your driver's license changed and so on. And very often uh, medications will be introduced at some point along there. Cross-sex hormone therapy, for example, giving high doses of testosterone to uh, women who seek to present themselves as men or giving high-dose estrogen to men who seek to present themselves as women. And that will have some profound effects on your body. Uh, cross-sex hormone uh, treatments given to women uh, will cause them to develop a lot of facial hair. Uh, it will cause them to uh, their their voices to lower depending on where in their life they began this treatment, uh, and it will cause an increase in muscle mass. It will cause a dramatic increase in aggression, and uh, and the way they conduct themselves. It has some pretty serious effects. In the case of men taking estrogen hormones, it will tend to really calm them down. If you give estrogen to anybody, they'll start feeling really calm and good. If you give large doses of sex hormones to anyone, they will feel better. And so you can convince yourself that you're on the right track, that, gee, ever since I started giving this girl testosterone, she feels so much better. She must really be a man. No. If you give high-dose testosterone to anyone, they will feel on top of the world. They'll want to go to the gym. They'll want to hit 62 home runs in a season. All kinds of things will happen. If you give high-dose estrogen to men, it's going to calm them down, and they're going to think, I really feel content with my life. Obviously, I should have gone estrogen long ago. That's not true. That's just the effect that the hormones has on your on your psyche, because that's one of the focuses of action of sex hormones. That's one of the reasons why men are different from women, because of what their, what their gonads are doing to their brains. 
So, so that's the sort of the backdrop for it. Then you can move into the more physical interventions. Uh, men seeking to present as women will have laser therapy to get rid of their face and body hair. Women uh, seeking to present as men, you know, will change their hairstyle and so on. Then you get into the actual surgical interventions. Uh, surgery on the face to feminize it, things that are done to the shape of the brow, the cartilages of the throat, and so on, uh, the, the shape of the nose. You can feminize a person's face, uh, and you can masculinize a person's face in sort of similar ways. In the case of women seeking to present themselves as men, removal of the breasts, mastectomy, that is a, a non-reversible removal of the breast. And that's an operation that's being offered now to adolescent girls. Mm. You know, all the while that they've been getting all the things I've spoken of up to now, like the hormones and the, the facial surgery and the hair and all the rest of that stuff, those are all presented as reversible things. And people who run tr uh, transgender clinics will reassure parents by saying, well, we're just going to do this so that, you know, they can have time to make up their mind. If they change their mind, it's reversible. Well, now we've gotten into that area of things that are not reversible. A mastectomy is not a reversible event. Uh, everything I've spoken about up to now, the face surgery, nose, neck, and so on, those are what are called top surgery. And with the exception of the breast surgery, those are generally thought of as reversible. But then you move into a category of operations that are not reversible, and those are the operations on the genitalia. So in the case of men seeking to present as women, uh, it, it, after they've had the, the, the things we've talked about earlier, you get to the definitive genital surgery, which includes castration, uh, removal of the testicles, the uh, opening of the penis and the removal of the erectile tissue, a procedure called penile inversion, where the penis is turned inside out and suspended up in the pelvis, turning it into a receptive structure. Oh, this gosh. is an operation. That operation's been around for a long time, and surgeons are you know, getting technically pretty good at doing it. Uh, the, the tissues of the scrotum are then turned into uh, labia, the external genitalia. Portions of the phallus itself are used to, to create the labia minora. But essentially what you're creating is a, is a receptive structure, and while you're doing it, you're trying to preserve the nerves to those parts of the genitalia that, are, that provoke erotic sensation, which is a very challenging thing to try to do when you're, when you're essentially mutilating the, the penis to try to preserve the, the neurological support for it so that the person can have erotic sensation from this counterfeit vagina that you've created. Problem is that this counterfeit vagina doesn't want to keep its dimensions, and so you're constantly having to attend to this, the dilation of it to try to preserve its dimensions and so on. You also are taking the urethra that was in the penis and shortening it down so that it essentially is just an opening at the top of this counterfeit uh, vaginal orifice that you've created. So that's the, the, the most commonly performed male operation uh, trying to present as male. In the case of women trying to present as men, uh, it begins with the removal of the ovaries in the uterus, the removal of the vagina, and the creation of a neophallus or a counterfeit penis. It can be done a couple of different ways. One of them is high-dose testosterone is going to produce an enlargement of the clitoris. And so when you have exhausted this very high supernormal levels of testosterone, and they've had this effect on the clitoris, an operation is done to lengthen the urethra so that it, 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 the urethra is extended along the underside of these, this 
uh, enlarged clitoris so that the urine empties at the tip of this structure. That operation is called a metoidoplasty. Uh, and essentially what you, what you get there is a, is a small phallus, and that's usually supplemented by creating a neoscrotum into which are placed two prosthetic testicles. And that's called metoidoplasty for for the more uh, for for women seeking a more developed uh, physique, if you will. A neophallus is produced by what's called a flap operation, where an area of tissue, typically from the leg, is raised up and uh, surgically turned into a cylindrical structure, inside of which is a, a urethral tube. And so it's a kind of an involved flap operation, but surgeons are getting quite good at doing that as well. And that urethral tube is then connected to the native urethra, which appears at the base of the clitoris. The clitoris tissue itself is sort of draped over the base of this neophallus. And uh, and then again, a, a, a counterfeit scrotum with, uh, with prosthetic testicles. And then in that whole uh, apparatus, you can also implant malleable or inflatable prosthetic that can produce a uh, the appearance of an erection. So that's wow. that's that's called an that's called a phalloplasty by flap operation. Dr. Labber, I'm just hearing what you're saying. And for those who are just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timmer and you might be wondering why are we talking about this? We're talking right. about the actual impact of a Sex change, you cannot change who you are, you cannot change your sex, but you can manipulate the body. And just some of what you're mentioning with the nerve ending impact on the man who's trying to transition to a woman and the lack of stimulation or for the woman, the loss of her uterus and her body to function the way they should to be able to have a child. I mean, these things are irreversible. That's correct. They're irreversible and quite disfiguring. In the case of a woman trying to present as a man, the most common flap operation done today is you harvest the skin for the neophallus from the forearm. It's called a, a radial forearm flap, and it's a tremendously disfiguring uh, surgery on the on the forearm. And so uh, these women who are presenting as men will will you know tattoo their forearms to conceal the, the disfigurement, and then. Uh, 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 so what you what you but what you wind up with then is a counterfeit phallus or a counterfeit vagina. Why? Because they don't function the way those structures function. In the case, obviously, of, of the reproductive organ, what you're doing is you're robbing the person of an essential human capacity, the reproductive faculty, uh, and and that's not reversible or retrievable. You cannot preserve. Uh, the the procreative function when you do these operations. And what I'd like to point out, too, is that, you know, as Catholics, we recognize the human sexual embrace as having two aspects. It's unitive and it's procreative, right? It unites the two persons in this, in this emotional, uh, spiritual bond, but it's also a fruitful union. Well, so you've robbed it of its fruitfulness. It's it's now become a sterile act. And and the other thing that people don't understand about it is that because of the surgeries I've just described, this desire to preserve erotic sensation from these structures that you're mutilating is never fully met. And here's the other problem with it. There's a there's a, a in the nature of our nervous system is a thing called neural mapping. So, for example, when when uh, you, you touch your shoulder, your brain knows you're touching your shoulder because the nerves coming from your shoulder are recognized as being from there. So I don't have to look at my hand touching my shoulder to know that my shoulder's being touched. 
Well, the nerves, the erotogenic nerves that come from the, the, the genitalia are mapped to the brain. And even though you preserve those nerves, the brain is still thinking that even though you've turned that your, your penis into a counterfeit vagina, whenever it's stimulated, the brain is still thinking that there's a penis down there. So here's a person trying to live as a woman, hoping that they're going to be able to conduct their lives as women do, who it enters into a relationship with a man, and then in the, in the, in the sexual act is constantly being reminded by their, by their own bodies that they are, in fact, still men. And that's a, that's a hard one to get over. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Timory here. I'm looking at how misrepresented the plastic surgery community, the psychological community is representing sex changes. If you weren't with us before, I have Dr. Patrick Lapper with me, who is a plastic surgeon working reconstructive surgeon, and he's talking about this misrepresentation that's taking place that people don't know all the details that you have just shared with me. Right, and so it actually begins even in the earliest stages of this this whole transgender thing, which now is happening at the grade school level, and it's happening in pediatric hospitals, where you know children are being encouraged encouraged to think of themselves as sex sexual beings who have to make decisions about their sexuality, and and if they voice the slightest idea of themselves as being the other sex. They're going to now be drawn into this world of transgender medicine, which now includes, of course, the use of puberty-blocking drugs to block their normal psychosexual development. It's atrocious. Uh, It's atrocious, and no one even knows how that's going to play out. There's no body of scientific evidence to even support the safety of doing that to children, but it's being done. And so we're, we're raising up a whole generation of children whose psychosexual development, their physical development... Their uh, neurological development, skeletal, everything is being uh, stunted in hopes of supporting this cross-sex idea of themselves. If you took 100 children with cross-sex idea of themselves, boys who think they're girls and girls who think they're boys, and you just left them alone, you raise them the way parents have been raising children for millennia, 91% of them will, will desist, 91% of them will stop thinking of themselves as the other sex. But if you take the same 100 children to a transgender clinic at your local urban center, 100% of them will persist in it, which on the face of it tells you that this is, this is the malpractice of medicine. If 91% of them would have gotten over the disease and 100% of them persist in it, obviously you're doing something wrong here. But nonetheless, that's how it's being presented. In the case of the surgical procedures, people are being led to believe that if you have the surgery, you will, your sorrows will go away. So what's called gender dysphoria. This, this interior sense of sadness that the persons who suffer with transgender feel, they're being told, they're being told that if they have all of this medical and surgical therapy, that those bad feelings will go away. And the best study looking into that tells us that that is not the case. That after a, a period of observation beyond about eight to ten years, 
the suicide rate goes right back to where it was if you didn't do anything for these people. If you didn't offer them any care at all, you'd have the same suicide rate that people have now after all of the surgical interventions and after the excitements died down and eight, ten years later, they're right back to a 40 to 42% suicide rate. So that's a huge misrepresentation of benefit that is just not true. And then speaking just to the morality of the surgery, uh, you know, in plastic surgery, we're always balancing form and function, the things we were talking about at the top of the hour. The human person has form and the human body has functions, and you always have to keep an eye out for both of those things. When I do a reconstructive operation, for example, if I had a man whose genitals were mutilated, right, let's say that his, he had an amputation of his penis, I would do that forearm flap reconstruction for him to restore the appearance of a penis. It wouldn't function other than the conducting of urine out, but it would, it would function in that sense, and that's a, that's a benefit to the patient. But I've created what's called a donor defect. The forearm is, has been distorted, but he's willing to accept a deformed, not, well, you know, an ugly-looking forearm so that he's able to you know, change his clothes in the gym and play sports with his buddies and urinate standing up and all of those things. So I've done him a benefit, but he's paid a price. That's called the donor morbidity. What price has he paid to have that reconstruction? Well, in the case of transgender surgery, the donor morbidity is surgical mutilation that sterilizes irreversibly. And that is a huge, that, that's an intentional destruction of a human faculty, right? Now the surgeon has become the mutilator rather than the reconstructor. And, and that is morally inexcusable in the world of plastic surgery that I grew up in. That's the kind of donor morbidity that is unacceptable. And, uh, and so, so on moral grounds, from the perspective of a plastic surgeon, this kind of surgery is utterly unacceptable. And then the last thing that's very important for us to talk about is that Transgender surgery is intimately linked with reproductive tech, assisted reproductive technology, mm-hmm. right? In vitro fertilization and the laboratory growth of human persons for implantation in surrogate pregnancies, the turning human persons into commodities. People who submit themselves for transgender surgery among the, the points of counseling is how do you want to preserve your quote-unquote fertility? So they will donate sperm, they will donate ova, those things will be put aside, and for future assisted reproductive technology, essentially turning human persons into commodities. Because they will be told, you have a right to have a child, even though you're having this transgender surgery, you have a right to have a child, so we're going to do these things for you. Well, that's the language of slavery. To speak of a person as having a right to another person is the language of slavery, which, of course, is what assisted reproductive technology, in vitro fertilization, that's where it's leading us. It's leading us to seeing the human person as a commodity that is regulated by the government, by government institutions, by universities, and by laboratories. And that is a huge evil. It's a huge evil. And never forget that transgender surgery is right at the heart of that evil. First of all, because it it, it utterly perverts our sense of human sexuality. It internally divides the human person from their very own bodies. And now it's separating the human community from their reproductive faculties in the era of assisted reproductive technology. So this is diabolical in every sense of the world. Diabolical. Well, 
when people are looking at this, they don't recognize that this gene editing, this manipulation of the human person, you know, you're saying that the two are happening hand in hand, but it is the same thing in many ways. It's us trying to force our image, what we have an idea of onto the human person. And there are side effects. I was just watching a TV show the other day and it was talking about the cloning and in vitro fertilization being used for horses. And they were talking about the weakened immune system and weakened performance. And I said, why are people talking about this for the human person? Because here's the reality. We're hearing stories. I'd heard a story a couple months ago about a young girl who was looking at transitioning and she hadn't started her period yet and therefore was not releasing eggs yet. But since she's transitioning, she might want the opportunity to have a child down the road. So they forced and really pressured the body to essentially enter into puberty early so that they could harvest eggs and then start the transition for her body. And just the fact that people are talking about this level of manipulation, that is hard on a little girl's body. Oh, it's terrible. It's, it's absolutely terrible. So yeah, it's a form of, of tyranny, exercising a, a form of tyranny over our own bodies. And in the case of children, it's child abuse mm-hmm. because children do not have the capacity to consent to those sorts of treatments. You cannot tell a pre-adolescent child anything about their adult life and expect that they're going to understand what you're telling them. Their concept of themselves is in the formative years. And to ask a child to think of their their sexuality when they're pre-adolescence is utterly insane. And it's, in fact, another great evil that's being inflicted upon children because it's the sexualization Mm -hmm. of normal, chaste friendships of childhood, right? So it's, it's normal for boys pre-adolescent boys, to want to be around other boys. That's what boys do. It's normal for girls to want to be around other girls. So if you ask a child who's in that stage of development who they love the most, well, they're going to naturally answer same sex. And then if you start talking to them, well, obviously you're gay, what you've done is you've sexualized a chaste friendship and you've ruined that person's capacity to know or to experience what chaste friendship means. And again, chaste friendship is the image, the earthly image of eternity for us. It's what we're called to. And you've ruined it for children by causing them to think this way. Dr. Lapper, just looking at this, this is what's so frustrating. We are in the era of Me Too, the sex abuse scandals within the church, where mental health has been on the rise and so many people are being treated for various sexual abuses in their past, molestation, and yet by sexualizing a child at a very young age, we are contributing to this mental health crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, we're making them, we're, we're essentially grooming them for being abused by older persons, whether mm-hmm. that's an adolescent child abusing a pre-adolescent child or, a, you know, a, a, a late teens boy abusing a middle teens boy. By sexualizing them, you're causing them to think of themselves in these terms, and it opens them to that, that kind of abuse. And the word for that is grooming, and abusers have been grooming children since the dawn of time. And and to see that happening now in public libraries, to see it happening now in school sex ed programs, is uh, is a great evil. Let's talk about resources for those who are just catching us at the end. Please use this episode as a resource, and everything we mentioned will be listed with links and books at radiotrending.com. I know one resource I'd like to mention for people who aren't aware is sexchangeregret.com. That's Walt Heyer, and he himself transitioned from being a biological man and then went back to being a biological man and shares his story and the story of many others. What other resources would you like to share, Dr. Lapper, on this issue? Well, you, you let off with the best, because Walter Heyer, in addition, 
addition to having the lived experience of this whole transgender thing, is one of the greatest advocates for sobriety in this area because he speaks from personal experience. And that website, Sex Change Regret, is rich in, uh, in examples and resources. Another great resource is the Courage website, Courage, C-O-U-R-A-G-E, Courage R-C, as in Roman Catholic, CourageRC.org. And the Courage website has a lot of resources, including some videos and audio presentations about transgender. Uh, another website that it is actually supported by the Courage Apostolate is called The Truth and Love, Truth and Love, which has a lot of uh, print and video uh, resources there on the subject of same-sex attraction as well as transgender. Thank you so much for being a voice. We need you to continue to speak up. Know of our prayers for you because you're giving a perspective on this issue that so many of us need to hear. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak publicly about this, Timory. You're a tremendous resource to the cause of truth. So. Well, thank you. That is Dr. Patrick Lappert. You can learn more about my guests and the awesome resources he gives us at Radiotrending.com. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit Radiotrending.com. That's Radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 